Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest today is Jason Michelli. He's a United Methodist pastor. He's the host of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast and the author most recently of Cancer is Funny. He's also a good friend. It was great to reflect on these texts with him. I give you Jason Michelli. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. I am surprised you were not asked to preach the royal wedding. <laughs> I, I, but it, you know, I think to to tempt the bride to cheating on her husband at the wedding by having me there would not be a wise move on the part. You of are an Adonis. You're an Adonis. You're you are. I'm better than fitt- a ginger kid. I mean, honestly, you are the fittest cancer survivor I know. You're at the gym all the time, all the time. And and I didn't know this. You've bench pressed three hundred pounds before. I I have. I don't think I've ever. I when I was I've in never. high school, I used to work out in the room above our gym or, or garage, rather. And more on more than one occasion, I would get the weight stuck on my chest, and I would have to scream for my uh, friend who lived across the street. You always need a spotter. Yeah, yeah, I learned that one. Always lift with a spotter. So the royal wedding, very interesting. I, I, you know, there's lots of. It's funny. Everybody has an opinion on the sermon, which is very interesting because I didn't think anybody watched this thing's first sermons, but it's just very intriguing. Uh, I thought it was. I, think it shows I, thought, it, I thought it was. You the know, bar is so low for the Christian church that when someone exceeds it, you know, there's this like, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, Jesus was mentioned in love and the cross, which is I'm I'm into all of that. I'm for all of those things. I didn't watch any of it, and then I saw everyone kind of freaking out about it, so I read the text of it. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it, like especially for a mainline kind of a royal wedding, it was. Although the there was a lot of fervor in it. I, I don't know the, the, at several points the Brit, the, well, the, the royal family like, we're British. <laughs> this is not British. <laughs> a little too much energy and verve. So this is Trinity Sunday coming up, the second Sunday of Pentecost, but also Trinity Sunday. And I guess that's because we have uh, we do that because in redemptive historical terms, with the release of the Spirit, we now have the full revelation of God, three in one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, through the Spirit, we know by the Son that God is our Father. Amen to that. You should copyright that. <laughs> I never heard it put exactly that way. It so. le- got left on the cutting room floor of my sermon for Pentecost. Nice. That's well. There you go. I talked a little about Victor Frankl and his man's search for meaning, but not uh, enough of my sermon got left on the cutting room floor of my son. Isn't that always the problem? <laughs> so our first text we have, we go into the book of Samuel. Right? It's First uh, Samuel three, I believe. I'm just. Uh, it? First, Isaiah 6. Hmm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have it wrong. Second Sunday after Pentecost. No, uh, first Sunday after Pentecost, Trinity Sunday. 
No, it is Isaiah 6. Sorry, I read it wrong. Sorry, my fault. I read it wrong. I, I was looking at the wrong Sunday. So for you listeners out there, that means Scott is well prepared for this. Exactly. Hey I, have, hey, I have all these texts so committed to memory. No, just kidding. Uh, so here we had this uh, this sense, we, we get this picture of Uriah, King Uzziah's death, and Isaiah, the prophet, sees the Lord sitting on a throne, and we have the Eucharistic, holy, 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 the text from which we get that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the first thing Isaiah says upon seeing all this is, woe me, yeah, woe is me, I'm a man, I'm lost, a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, yet I've seen the Lord. Then he asks, you know, this, seraph touches, this angel touches his mouth, his guilt is departed, his sin is blotted out, and then we hear this voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, send me and I, people, this hymn, people are divided. I love that hymn. Here I am. Uh, here am I, Lord. Oh my gosh. That is because you are not an ordained clergy person and don't have to go to the meetings. I am an ordained clergy. I, I, I haven't had to go to big meetings that very are often. Are you ordained? Though. I didn't know that. I am. I've been I mean, ordained a couple of times. Bill and I have both been ordained a couple, couple of times. A couple of times. Uh, so it's very interesting. Like Bill Bohr also hates that hymn. So it's, I like it. So you're like the woman caught in ordination. Exactly. I like it. I, I kind of, I, I, I like the tune. I like the sentiment. But here, you know, it's interesting about this text. <laughs> it's better than pastors singing Holy Spirit fall afresh on me and doing the hand motions. Yeah, most no, pastors. Than pastors doing hand motions. Especially white pastors shouldn't do a lot of hand motions. <laughs> Not hand. So it's interesting, you know, there's uh, some kind of reformed liturgical folks who see in this passage sort of the quintessential elements of any kind of worship service, right? There's a call there's a sense of a calling, right? You, you see these, the glory of God is made manifest. Then immediately the, f- the first thing Isaiah does is like when the light goes on, they say, so it says when you walk into the basement and turn the light on, the first thing you do is like the critters all scatter, right? Mm-hmm. So you see your brokenness and darkness. And so there's this confession of sin. Then there, so, so there's like calling, right? Like you, you, God's presence, like calls us, you know, God calls us in his presence. There's confession, uh, then once his sin is taken away, there's consecration, right? Which is sort of like the ministry of the word, like the sense in which he's set apart and, and made, you know, God fits him for service or prepares him. And then there's a, a commissioning. The one thing that's missing is kind of communion. Like sometimes in these senses, there's meals, but, but you have this pattern of sort of, you know, calling confession and cleansing consecration or building up, you know, setting aside. And then here, you know, in other places you'd have like some kind of covenant seal, which is we do liturgically with communion and then commissioning, you know, that he's who, you know, who shall I send? Send me is sent out. So it's like the drama of worship in miniature. Mm -hmm. And I I like the juxtaposition of, um, so the, you know, so you have the, the right worship of the seraphs and attendants calls out uh, the unclean speech on the part of Isaiah. Um, and then you have the hot coal blot out his sin, which is on his lips. Um, so it's sort of like, I, I like this, um, this idea, especially on Trinity Sunday, um, that what it means to be unclean, first and foremost, is to, is to not know how to speak of God rightly. Yeah. You know, like, and I like Stanley's insistence that, you know, Christianity is, before it's anything else, it's it's a grammar, and it's a, and it's a way of speech. 
Um, and then, you know, now with Pentecost, we are able to name God rightly. Um, and, and, and we do so by the word that is this hot coal that blots out Isaiah's sin. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's right. You know, it's interesting in Robert Jensen's little theology outline, he, it's such typical Jensen. It's so elegant and the economy of language is amazing, but he's, he cuts, he defines the church so quickly. He's like, you know, lots of people have all these different, but let's just say whatever, whatever you think the church has a message and it exists as it passes on the message. And that's, that is true. like the church's being is extrinsic, right? It, it points away from itself and it finds its life outside of itself. Not, mm-hmm. this is where I get, I get the willies whenever somebody talks about the church in a way that draws attention to the church uh-huh. as opposed to the one that the church bears witness to and whose life, it, you know, from whom it derives its life. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I get weary of are people who are constantly saying as Christians or as the church we're called to do X, Y, and Z. And I always want to say like, really? Where, where does it say that? Like, where does it say we have to do that? Um, you know, and, and like this is a day in the liturgical year when we remember that our first calling is is to worship God. And then there is no other deeper imperative upon us than to worship God rightly. Yeah, and the, you know, the, the fruit of it's interesting, you know, the, the, the fruit of grace is love and gratitude. So, mm-hmm. you know, all things can be done in love and gratitude, except maybe serial killing or something. But, you know, like they're saying, but, you know, many things that we think are salutary can be done in, lo- in the spirit of love and gratitude or not done in that spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, this is uh, I, I think I told I, this. I definitely story. think we have a, a lack of soteriological conviction that we don't that we don't trust the experience of grace to produce the other things. Yes. Um, and so then we like, we focus on the salutary things cause we're like, we're afraid that like they're not going to get taken care of. Um, because implicitly we assume we're the ones doing the doing. There's this story that Spurgeon used to tell about this, like medieval farmer, surf peasant farmer who they, there's this gargantuan sort of freakish carrot he needs a wheelbarrow to carry is it is born you know grows in his field and he, he he wheels it into the king's audience right with all these nobles and the king is so moved by this strange freakish carrot but the gift that the simple serf would mm-hmm. offer to him that he he gives him his land and makes him a free man well the net well the, the royal the royal court is sort of scandalized by this and the next week at the audience one of the court brings you know he has the nicest stables and it brings this find a sta- horse in a stable and gives it to the king, and the king is nonplussed, just completely not moved in the least by the gift. And the the royal says, well, how, I, this man brought you this freakish carrot and you gave him his freedom. This, certainly this is much greater than that and nothing. And the king says, yeah, the, the farmer gave me the carrot. You gave the horse to yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that is the difference between things that are truly the works of love Versus things that are the works of self-love or self-insecure or insecurity mm-hmm. or our own sort of attempt to make ourselves feel better. And yeah, worse. I think um, it's in story and promise where Jensen talks about how, you know, the church is, is this fellowship that has this one message to tell. And there's lots of other things that we could tell, um, but other people and other or, you know, other institutions or whatnot, like they can do those better than us. Like this yeah. is the one. This is you know, this is the pearl of great price that we have to pass on. Amen to that. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I 
great price uh the book of romans here we have our second readings from romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 where paul is saying that we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh but to the spirit and that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but a spirit of sonship great uh sort of one of these i mean chapter 8 i think douglas campbell says the most beautiful thing paul ever wrote which yeah I think, you know, I guess you could make the case for that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't vehemently protest that. Yeah, I'm, I'm torn between, um, so the last time I talked with Fleming Rutledge, you know, she wanted to make the point that Romans 8 follows Romans 7. And so that you, you can't just stop with. That's a, br- that's a brilliant insight. You know, because I thought it followed Romans 14. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like we can't just say, well, I, you know, I that which I don't want to do, I do, and that which I do, I don't want to do. Like we can't just stay there um, because that Romans eight follows with the Spirit empowering us. Um, but then I also know that like someone like Beverly Gaventa would want to point out that what Paul's not making a linear argument in Romans eight, uh, in in Romans, and that he's continually kind of reaching these crescendos and then doubling back at the beginning of his argument. Um, so, I, so I don't know that you can read eight as following seven um, in such a straightforward way. Maybe we could read eight before seven. Exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful passage. It's really interesting. Frank Lake says about this um, in a section on schizoid personalities. He said those who are in apparently successful flight from the spirit of bondage in themselves may be confident of scriptural warrants for their happy mental state and yet be insisting prematurely on the Christian right to complete freedom from fear. Since they will not permit their private backlog of fear to enter the mind at all, they remain, in fact, in bondage to the unadmitted fear of dread. Whereas if they would accept the courage of the Spirit to enter into dread, that is the one place where the reality of God is revealed to faith alone in the complete absence of any self-assuring frame of mind in the believer. And then he quotes Charles Simeon. So preaching on 8.15, Charles Simeon says, said, Have you received the spirit of bondage? Have you received the spirit as a spirit of bondage? Despite, despise it not, the fears and terrors with which he has filled your minds may be introductory, introductory to your final liberty and your complete salvation. It is thus that the spirit usually, if not invariably, works in those who were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. He first wounds and then heals the soul. He causes us to feel ourselves lost and makes use of that feeling to lead us to him who came into the world to seek and save us. Hmm. That's interesting, right? That, that, like, that the freedom can paradoxically include the feeling of non-freedom. Mm-hmm that we shouldn't sort of, there's a kind of sort of desire to convince ourselves that we're, we have the spirit of freedom, which also, you know, unnat- like, we're denying our own ambiguity. And, and the way to feel free is not to deny the, our feelings of ambiguity and, and our, our sort of the peccato of the time I used mm-hmm. to say peccato. It's, it's to lean into that there and not be afraid of it. Yeah. And, and maybe that's how eight and seven connect. Um, that our, you know, our freedom is always occasioned by experiences of unfreedom, because our freedom has been achieved apart from us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's important that right before this passage, the way Paul understands the work of the Spirit is, is to convey to us 
the work of Christ, which frees us from the law. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that's such a, you know, it's interesting because last week's lectionary text, the gospel reading, uh, Dale Brunner says that, or no, maybe, maybe it's not Dale Brunner, but somewhere. I, yeah, this is, I preach it sort of like the Spirit tells us three things. This is like what in that text, the advocate will tell, tell the world what's wrong, mm-hmm. right? And then what's right, like Jesus yep. makes right what's wrong. And the third thing is like who wins. And so not mm-hmm. the, the, the condemner of the world, you know, yep. the accuser doesn't win, but the risen Christ wins. And that, and what's important about that on Trinity Sunday, I, I think, is that, you know, Jesus says there in, in John 16 that, that, you know, the, I mean, the chief problem of the world is like its lack of belief in him. Um, and so, you know, so the, so the appropriateness of having peace with justice Sunday on Trinity Sunday is that all our concerns about the injustices of the world are all correlative to our, our, our worship of something other than God in Christ. Yeah, and I, and so I, I wouldn't even say our concerns, but like the sense in which if you want to be rightly concerned, right? Like there's a sense mm-hmm. in which... Yeah, that's a better way to put it. You, you, like Luther says, right, that our, our works are not for God, they're for our neighbor. Because mm-hmm. God doesn't need our works. And so mm-hmm. in some since you can really love the world, right, and be concerned when it's not your ultimate concern. Mm-hmm. It, but when it becomes your ultimate concern, it becomes an idol. And when something becomes an idol, you don't value it. It becomes an it by nature. Yeah. Whether it's a person or a call, it has to it has to become something that's that you're using as opposed to something you can give to. Yeah, I think I definitely I, I know a lot of Christians whose quote unquote good works are really acts of anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, making other people the object of your anxiety about your lack of justification. Um you know, and so in, in this context in Romans eight, it's it's you know it's the spirit that frees you to really love your neighbor as your neighbor, and and not as you know a chit on your checklist of, of virtue. anxiety let's go to nicodemus and john three who who anxiously probably comes to jesus at night <laughs> because he doesn't want to be seen <laughs> so he comes to jesus and says you know we're no we know your teachers come from god which is an interesting way to open up right an acknowledgement of authority no one can do the things you do um apart from the presence of god and jesus answer is very interesting because it's, no a, it's a good comment, considering that like we live in a world where most people are content to see Jesus as a teacher, um, right, right, and to like uh, you know unintentionally put themselves in the position of Nicodemus rather than an actual disciple. Yeah, I mean, but he he seems at least to see something going on here, and Jesus' response is like saying that he has to be born from above. To which Nicodemus says, you know, how can I go back into my mother's womb, and you know, it, they go back and forth a little bit, and 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 you know, your Jesus is your teacher of Israel. Don't you understand? You got to be born of water um, and the Spirit. And it's interesting because you have this oftentimes in the Gospel of John these two level understandings. Mm-hmm. Like somebody's not seeing something. Like what Jesus says, you know, I, uh, those who come to me, you know, I if you, I give you living water. You never think, well, I'm coming to the what the woman at the well. well I'm coming to the well all the time. Where do I find this water? Yeah. So I have to walk yeah. here. I mean, oftentimes 
there's a sort of base understanding and she's just saying, no, 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 you have to reframe your understanding to see this. Is that, is that Schneckenberg? Is he the commentator who focuses on that? Am I, I don't know. I don't know name drop. I'm just, yeah, I'm recalling could, an undergraduate class on the gospel of John. Yeah. Schne- I know Schneckenberg a little bit, but Great. I don't know if that's him. Maybe anyway. it could be, it could be Schneckenberg. <laughs> but that, you know, that's an interesting thing that he's, he's got a, you know, He's got to become a child in the sense of childish, not childishness, but childlikeness. Mm-hmm. And he, he, that that's a tough thing for him to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because Jesus says you've got to be born of water and the spirit. And John sort of says one's going to come that's going to come with bring the spirit and, and fire. and all stuff. But Jesus doesn't talk that much about the spirit and he baptizes no one. <laughs> Basically yeah. in the gospel. So it's an interesting thing that except John's gospel ends, you know, with Jesus on the cross and water being poured out from his side and him commending his blood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And he teaches about the spirit like in the upper room discourse. But other than that, in the gospels, you don't see Jesus yeah. talking about, but his death and resurrection unleashes the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, one of the things I, I drives me crazy about this passage is how, like the idea of being born again is inherently a, an image of which you play no part. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like, yeah, you, you know, receive it. You don't so achieve like it's, it. It's just gospel, and we turn it into something that we do. Yeah, um, you've got to pray a prayer. You, you know, it's interesting. Paul's all I heard him give some tea, like a talk to Episcopalians on preaching, and he said, "This is the gospel. So you must be born again. Everybody, every week, wants to be born again, and you preach for being born again in, in the sense of you try to." present Jesus in a way that leads to rebirth, you know, that people, everybody needs this, has this d- d- desire for rebirth, you know, which you're right. You can't achieve. You can only receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I like mean, baptism in the Eucharist too, right? They're receptive acts. Yeah. So there's a sense in which, I mean, Nicodemus can, can get, gets Jesus better than we do. Cause he's like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Right. Right. <laughs> and that's precisely, there is a, there is still something paradoxical about it, right? Mm-hmm. But Jesus is like, it's the wrong paradox you're getting at. Yep. Like, it's, it, it, but you, he's right and he's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I wish in football games we would hold up John 17. 3 17. Yeah, for God <laughs> sent, did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, <laughs> but in order that the world might be saved through Like, I feel like that would be a refreshing thing. Christians could just say, God doesn't condemn you, <laughs> but wants to love you and save you. Yeah, and and that's a good. I mean, to marry John three sixteen with you know what is the beginning of the Romans passage that through the Spirit we know there is now no condemnation. Amen to that, Jesus. Yeah. Well, I hope that all our listeners Wait, are, are we done are, are able to. Yeah, we're 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 dude. We're hitting the twenty five minute limit. We're getting there. So I hope that all of our listeners. If you'd like a longer conversation, I suggest you tune in to Strangely Warmed by Crackers and Grape Juice. For a longer one. Absolutely. Longer, (laughs) long-winded, circuitous. Now, thanks, Jason, again, for coming out with me. And blessings to all those who are preaching the good news of no condemnation in Christ. Pleasure was all yours, Scott. Amen. Always. Always with you, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Michelle. You can follow Jason's exploits at tamecynic.org. 
And check out his podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice. Thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next week. Until then, fare thee well.